A reversal on a law restricting the purchase of semi-automatic rifles. Gun rights advocates have really been filing a lot of these lawsuits trying to reshape California gun laws. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A look at how parents are dealing with the shortage of baby formula. It's just a really scary and emotional time for parents. You know, this basic thing, you need to feed your baby, and that's in question now. And what's the future of the housing market as home prices rise? Plus, the legacy of the San Diego Italian Film Festival's founder. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hey, 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 this is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. The cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation, and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can. All right? Thanks. A federal appeals court has struck down a state law prohibiting the sale of semi-automatic rifles to people under the age of 21. The law was initially passed shortly after the 2019 Poway Synagogue shooting and was designed to close a loophole that allowed the 19-year-old perpetrator to obtain the gun he used in that attack. San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Christina Davis has been covering this story. Christina, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. First off, how did this case come to the attention of the Ninth Circuit Court? Well, it started as a lawsuit, a civil rights lawsuit in San Diego Federal District Court. It was a group of young adults, people who are right in this age group of 18 to 20, and also some gun advocacy groups and some firearms dealers. And they were basically challenging a a pair of laws that restricted gun sales for young adults under 21. How did the judges rule on this? So the Ninth Circuit ruling came back today, and it was a split ruling, two to one. But basically, the majority panel said that one of the laws they felt probably was constitutional. And that law has to do with a ban on people under the age of 21 buying long guns. And we're talking about rifles and shotguns and things like that, unless they had a valid hunting license. So they said that that seemed reasonable under the Second Amendment. What they overturned and kind of the news of the day is they found the other law unconstitutional. And that law was really singling out um, semi-automatic rifles, which is the kind of rifle that was used in the Poway attack. And that law said that for anyone under 21, they are not allowed to buy semi-automatic rifles, even if they have a hunting license. There's very few exceptions. It was a complete ban. And they said that that was unconstitutional because it placed a severe burden on their Second Amendment rights. What reasoning was given for overturning this law? One thing 
they did say is that the ban on semi-automatic rifles was very much like a complete ban almost. The only exceptions carved out to that law are for sworn peace officers or military members. And the court kind of in their ruling incredulously kind of said, you know, so you're saying that anyone under 21, you know, 18 to 20, basically, who wants to buy one of these rifles has to either become a police officer or join the military. Like that doesn't seem very reasonable, you know, for, you know, a thing that many young adults could do. And they also pointed out that a lot of police departments around the country don't even accept people who are under 21 anyways. Another point that they made was for self-defense. They said it places severe burden on their right to self-defense and defense of the home, which has been really big part of Second Amendment law. And they're saying, look, People who are under 21 are already not allowed to buy a handgun. That's a separate law that wasn't really an issue here, but they're saying they can't buy a handgun really under any circumstances. Now you're saying that they can't buy semi-automatic rifles. Those are the two best weapons that can be used for defending the home, they argued. And they said that left them with very few other options to defend the home if they wished. And then that was a severe burden on their rights. Okay, so let's go back to the law itself and why it was originally passed. Uh, To what extent was this law a reaction to the 2019 Poway Synagogue attack? It very much was so. We've seen a lot of these other laws in recent years. I'm just talking about like the last decade or under the last decade being passed that are in response to horrific shootings, school shootings and, and mass shootings. And so I I kind of see this as just the latest. And this was passed in uh, several months after the April 2019 synagogue shooting. And it basically addresses or tries to address the way that the gunman got the weapon for the attack. He went to a gun shop in Grantville here in San Diego and basically said that he had a hunting license that had been issued to him, which meant that he, you know, under that exception was able to buy an AR-15 style rifle. And so this law basically was in reaction to that saying, well, we're going to get rid of that hunting license exception for these kinds of weapons. Now, the, the weird thing about you know, how the gunman got the weapon and everything is that it the transaction itself was actually kind of hinky and maybe not legal anyways, because while the gunman had actually had a hunting license issued to him, it wasn't yet valid. It was supposed to um, actually go into effect and be valid a few months later at the beginning of July, which is the beginning of the official hunting season. So, you know, there's some controversy there whether he should have even been sold the gun in the first place, but it's clearly what the gun shop relied on to give him that weapon. You know, the the Ninth Circuit Court has historically been quite liberal, yet that's changed in recent years, especially with rulings on firearms. Why is that? Former President Trump, he appointed a lot of judges to the Ninth Circuit, you know, during his his tenure. And um, it really has reshaped a large portion of the court. If you look at just active duty judges on the Ninth Circuit, which is, you know, by the way, the biggest um, appeals circuit uh, federally, you know, there are still a few more liberals than conservatives. And so gun rights advocates have really been filing a lot of these lawsuits trying to reshape California gun laws, um, you know, hoping for some favorable outcomes due to kind of the change on the, the federal bench and, you know, also in the Supreme Court. You know, how has the state attorney general's office reacted to this reversal? Um, I, you know, they sent me a really short um, statement last night. Um, when I reached out, they basically said they're they were continuing to review the decision. 
Um, and, you know, that something like they were still committed, you know, to upholding California's, you know, gun laws, you know, for public safety. Um, one thing that they could do, and I have seen them do with many uh, other of these rulings, um, is that they can ask a larger panel of the Ninth Circuit um, to uh, relook at the case and, and, and rehear it. Um, so, you know, the, the first step to the Ninth Circuit is you get heard um, before a panel of three judges. And then, um, you know, if, if deemed necessary, and if, if the Ninth Circuit, enough Ninth Circuit uh, judges, they kind of vote on it. And if they agree to rehear it, they think it's an important enough issue, then they can vote to rehear it. And it's, um, it's 11 judges. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter Christina Davis. Christina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Only about 25% of American mothers exclusively breastfeed their infants for the first six months of life. That's according to the CDC. So baby formula is essential. But now it's also very hard to find, so hard that parents are scouring stores, petitioning manufacturers, and issuing heartfelt pleas for formula over the internet. Couple that scarcity with rising prices, and some families are getting a little desperate. Joining me is KPBS race and equity reporter, Christina Kim. Christina, welcome. Hey, Maureen. What has happened to the nation's supply of baby formula? Right. Like so many items during the pandemic, the lack of supply is due to supply chain issues, historic inflation, but it's also due to some product recalls earlier this year. In February, Abbott Nutrition, which is a big player in the domestic formula market, had to recall some of its formula after two babies died of bacterial infections after ingesting it. So all these factors have really shrunk the supply, with some retail trackers showing that there's a whopping 43% less formula on store shelves than usual. Now, you spoke with a mother of a three-month-old in Santee. What did she tell you about how her baby's doing? I spoke to Megan Lenz, whose daughter Stephanie has been struggling to put on weight and keep food down until she found formula that actually worked for her. Let's take a listen. We've had to try different formulas to see what she can handle. Um, So we finally found Nutramagen Hypoallergenic is the only one that she can use. She has some medical issues. So as you can imagine, you know, Megan was so relieved to finally find a formula that worked for her baby. But now, of course, the big problem is she can't find that formula in stores. And when she does, it's more expensive than before. As you can imagine, Megan's really scared and nervous about how she's going to be able to feed Stephanie in the coming months if this shortage continues. It's just a really... What I heard from her, it's just a really scary and emotional time for parents. You know, this basic thing, you need to feed your baby, and that's in question now. And she got help, though, from a Facebook post, right? Yeah, Megan told me she's not really one to post on Facebook, but in a moment of desperation, she put a call out on Facebook asking for people to buy the formula she needs if they saw it in stores and she would reimburse them. She's been pretty overwhelmed with the results. She's had people shipping her formula from other states, and her brother-in-law even drove one day from Arizona just to get her what she needed. Let's take a listen. Because of that post, I have stocked up about a month, maybe, maybe five weeks worth. But after that, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. 
And she's also paying it forward. You know, as she said at the top, she was really experimenting with a lot of different formulas to see what baby Stephanie could keep down. A lot of them didn't work. So she's actually gone on and offered mothers this opened formula for free, something that she said, you know, normally moms wouldn't accept that, especially given this times to accept open formula. But she had a mother from El Cajon come and was just in tears, so thankful to actually get her hands on any formula. So at this point, what I'm hearing from Megan, it's just parents really looking out for each other. And you say when parents can actually find baby formula, the price has increased? Yeah, so as always, when supply shrinks, prices go up. So Megan says that when she does find the formula she needs, the price has shot up $5, from $33 to $38 per 12-ounce can. Between the shortage and the high prices, struggling families must be turning to food banks for formula. But do the food banks have any supplies? Right. So I actually spoke to Casey Castillo. He's the CEO of the San Diego Food Bank, which is one of only three food banks in the state that offer diapers, formula and baby wipes. And as of this Tuesday, they have absolutely no baby formula left in their stock. Uh, Let's take a listen. We have never uh, experienced this and we've never seen where we've been completely out of baby formula at both locations. Casey told me that getting formula is actually really challenging. They're always kind of running low, but this is historic to have nothing at all. And as I mentioned, again, they're one of only three food banks in the state of California that offer formula for families in need. And Casey said that they've seen the demand grow for this product year after year since they started giving it in 2019. So what is being done to get baby formula back on the market? Is the FDA working with manufacturers? Leaders of both political parties have been critical of the federal government's response. They're saying not enough is being done. The FDA says it's working to increase domestic production and import more formula. But as of now, we have yet to see what that's actually going to look like. In the meantime, though, the FDA is warning about the temptation some parents may have to make their own formula. That's right. The FDA is saying, please do not try and make homemade formula. The reality is, is that it may lack the essential nutrients that babies and infants really need. And, you know, on on top of that, they need to avoid risky behaviors. There's no need to dilute infant formula and there's no need to introduce cow's milk earlier than recommended. I've been speaking with KPBS race and equity reporter Christina Kim. Christina, thank you very much. Thank you, Maureen. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. 
Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. The cost of homes in San Diego is the highest it's ever been. And one national home tracker has named San Diego the least affordable housing market in the country. How did things get so tough? And how are people trying to cope? KPBS reporter Thomas Fudge has the story. In North Park, Jake Huras has an apartment that costs $2,100 a month. It's one bedroom, one bath, and 650 square feet that he shares with his girlfriend. He was just forced out of another apartment in Normal Heights, and his new place is smaller and more expensive. About $100 more, we lost our parking space, we lost a bedroom and a bathroom, 100 square feet but it was like the only place that kind of fit the uh, criteria we needed. To make ends meet, he's had to increase the debt on his credit card and cancel his health insurance. Jake's story is typical of a San Diego market where rents have increased 19% over the past year, according to apartmentlist.com. Jan Neff Sinclair rents an apartment for $2,800 a month in Carlsbad. Like Hura, she was recently forced out of another apartment when the building was sold. She can pay for her new place on her disability income thanks to her roommate's Section 8 voucher, but it's hard to know how long that'll last. It's affordable now. If they raise the rent again in October, it probably won't be unless Social Security goes up a lot or the housing voucher goes up a lot. As rents surge upwards, mortgages are doing the same. The San Diego Association of Realtors reports the median price for a detached home in San Diego was $1 million in April. Who can afford a million-dollar home? San Diego realtor Stephanie Lloyd says a lot of her dual-income clients simply don't have the money that's required. If you're buying a million-dollar home, typically what I'm seeing is income, either singular or combined, um, probably around $200,000. Um, and then with a 20% down payment to go along with that. A survey by the Texas home buying website OJO has called San Diego the least affordable metro area in the U.S. Political pressures and a dwindling supply of buildable land have long prevented San Diego from keeping up with the demand for new housing. That's according to Alan Jin, an economics professor at the University of San Diego. Jin says today's rising home prices are fueling speculation as investors may cash offers for homes in hopes of selling them for a profit. And something else has happened following the COVID pandemic. Jin calls it the pandemic piggy bank. During the pandemic, a lot of people were able to keep uh, working. They were were still drawing in a lot of income, but uh, they didn't have anywhere to spend it. So people built up a reserve of cash. Once the pandemic uh, ended uh, or or once things started opening up again, people took that money and uh, have gone out and spent it in the economy. And one place that they've, they've put that money is into the housing market. What's happening in our region is part of a bigger trend. Chris Alviati, an economist with ApartmentList.com, says rents rose 16% nationwide in the past 12 months. That's just three percentage points less than in San Diego. In our region, high housing demand isn't going away. Salviati says San Diego is a sticky market. Despite high home prices, people still don't want to leave, and lots of people are still trying to move here. The folks that are searching uh, for apartments in San Diego 
about 40% of them are searching from outside the metro. And so the flow of folks coming from outside of the metro really kind of outweighing the, the flow of folks looking to leave the metro. Is there a way to mitigate San Diego's housing shortage? Marco Lamandri says there is. He is the president of New City America, which creates urban development districts. I caught up with LaMandry on Adams Avenue in Kensington. He says San Diego has plenty of buildable land. You just have to knock down the obsolete buildings that are sitting on it. I think that what we did is we overbuilt in the United States in the 20th century. And today the result is lots of retail and office buildings that have lost their value and could make way for housing. We're here on Adams Avenue and you're looking up and down, you see a lot of one-story, non-historic buildings. And uh, the example I give you is the old DeMille's restaurant that was there for years. 15,000 square foot lot, if I'm not mistaken. They just sold that uh, and they're going to be, I think, well over 100 apartments built there. LeMandry says if the housing market is going to meet the demand, those kinds of projects need to move ahead and developers will have to build up. That means dense, multi-story housing is going to be in San Diego's future and we had better get used to it. For now, San Diegans are doing their best to afford whatever they can. Jake Huris works in construction. He says he's worked on remodels of people's homes and he wonders where they find the money to do it. You know, people who have, you know, plenty of money to be able to, like, do these remodels and everything and stuff. And it's just like, you know, I feel like I'm just a hardworking guy. I feel like I have an uncanny work ethic. Here I am, you know, pushing 50 hours a week, and it's like I can barely scrape by. Rising interest rates may lead to a cooling housing market. But for now, just scraping by will remain a reality for a lot of people. Thomas Fudge, KPBS News. Two more journalists have been killed in Mexico this week, bringing the grim total of reporter deaths to 11 this year. The latest murders were of two women from an online news site in the state of Veracruz. News of their deaths came the same day as a rally held in Mexico City to commemorate the death of a reporter in Sinaloa just last week. Drug cartels and their hitmen are often blamed for the murders of Mexican journalists. Mexican prosecutors have named associates of the old Ariana Felix drug cartel in the murders of two Tijuana journalists earlier this year. But many people don't believe the government's case against the cartel and accuse authorities of a cover-up. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Wendy Fry, who has been covering these killings in Mexico. And Wendy, welcome to the program. Hi, Maureen. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us about the most recent incidents of journalist killings in Mexico that happened this week? Right. So on Monday, I believe in Veracruz, two other reporters uh, were gunned down by unnamed assassins. A Just as you know, as you mentioned, Mexican journalists were already preparing to have a protest from a killing late last week. And then two more were killed just as reporters were getting ready to go to these rallies uh, across Mexico to honor the colleague who fell the week before. So it just shows how relentless these killings have been. And, you know, Veracruz prosecutors have promised that their investigation will be exhaustive, but they're already saying that they don't think that it had anything to do with their work as journalists and already, you know, their, their, their statements are being called into question on those murders in Veracruz as well. Now, Wendy, have reporters and journalists been killed in separate areas all over Mexico? 
Yes, that's right. All over Mexico, two in Tijuana um, in January, just within days apart of each other. Margarito Martinez, who was a close colleague of ours, um, and Lorenz Maldonado, who is a longtime prominent broadcast journalist. Um, and then since 2020, there's been multiple killings all over all over Mexico. Mexican authorities have named the alleged killers of the two journalists murdered in Tijuana this year. Tell us about that. Right. So they have three people in the case of Margarito Martinez, who they've already been through several hearings, several preliminary hearings. What happened is that they think that Margarito, days before he was killed, there was a uh, news report published in SECTA, the investigative weekly magazine, that named the head notorious gangster El Cabo 20, El Cabo 20, and gave information about his criminal network. And these individuals who killed Margarito, according to their text messages that are part of this case, believed that Margarito was the one that was responsible for supplying SETA with that information about Cabo Bente's criminal network. But why would these remaining members of the Ariano Felix drug cartel target Lourdes Maldonado? There's really no clear evidence that they would have anything against her. She wasn't, at the time of her murder, doing anything or producing any investigative reports that were highlighting the criminal activities of this group or calling out the Ariano Felix cartel or anything like that. So that's where a lot of the questions come in about whether the people that killed both of these journalists were actually from the same criminal cell and why the Ariano Felix cartel is the one that's being named. And many critics say maybe it's because they're the ones with the least amount of power right now in Baja California. So they're sort of the easiest ones to blame. And these criminals that are in custody, they are very low level criminals. Uh, You know, they're not these gangsters with a bunch of power and guns and drugs and money. Um, They're just low level hitmen on the totem pole. And so law enforcement officials on both sides of the border say really, you know, they could have been working for anyone the way um, that the criminal networks have sort of dissolved right now. Um, And that's very indicative of the overall crime problem in Mexico, right? You know, it's all chaos at the bottom right now, whereas it used to be these three major drug cartels battling it out in a very kind of clear um, alliances now everything's sort of just dissolved into chaos and you never really know who's fighting who or who's working with who. And overall, are there doubts about the lack of transparency in this investigation? Right. There's definitely huge doubts about the lack of transparency in the case of Lourdes Maldonado because the case has been closed to the public. So we aren't able to hear what they call as their investigative folder, right? We, we, they have these binders and they have all the information on the crimes, but and in open cases, journalists are able to go sit in on those hearings and hear all the evidence as it's presented. That's not the case with Lourdes because the federal government claims that there's a witness who needs to be protected. And so they've closed the hearing And so we haven't been able to hear any information about how they've come to the conclusion that that, that these criminals were responsible for her murder. And which is highly questionable, especially because the person that she was speaking out against was the state governor. Before she was killed, she had just won a longtime legal battle against the state governor. And over it was like a labor dispute that she had won. And she had said she was presenting more evidence and she was going to present evidence a day or two after when she was killed. 
And so that's what critics are really calling into question is that there needs to be some transparency when the person that she was in a fight with was this state actor. Now, as I said before, nearly a dozen journalists have been killed this year in Mexico. Wendy, you spend a lot of time reporting in Mexico. Do you feel that you could be in danger in any way? A couple of years ago, I would have said not at all. I get very worried about the safety of my colleagues, but I never felt any sense of, of danger because I work for a U.S. media organization. And so I feel like there's there's never been a U.S. journalist killed in Mexico. And so there's a certain level, I guess, of, of protection there by working for a U.S. company. However, as I explained before, how everything sort of dissolved into chaos now, and there's um, all these more low-level, fractured, splintered criminal groups fighting, the feeling on the streets in some neighborhoods is anything could happen at any time. But I will say, um, as far as as far as the tourism zones, if you're just doing tourism, you're usually pretty safe. And if you go off into areas that you don't know that are unrecognized to you and are not for tourists, that's where you might be in more danger of petty crime, right? So it depends, I guess, where you are and kind of what kind of story you are doing. But some of my stories do take me into to areas that are not sort of your typical tourist zones of TJ. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Wendy Fry. Wendy, thanks so much. Stay safe. Thank you, Maureen. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, so we wanted to take a closer look at where the evolving field of psychiatry is finding success and failure. Author and academic Andrew Skull says the U.S. has largely failed in treating mental illness through its history, calling it a riddle we must continue to strive to solve. Skull is an author and distinguished professor of sociology emeritus at UC San Diego. His new book, Desperate Remedies, Psychiatry's Turbulent Quest to Cure Mental Illness, comes out next week. Professor Skull, welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you very much for having me, Jade. So your book is about the history of psychiatry in America. What was the main question you wanted to answer with this book? Well, it's a book I've been thinking about writing for very many years. And what I wanted to do was look at the whole arc of psychiatry in America, where it came from and where it ended up, where we are now. So I was very concerned with how it was that psychiatry came to understand mental illness through time, because that has varied a great deal, and what it tried to do to treat mental patients, because those two things are somewhat separate, although they tend to go hand in hand. In your book, you talk about three eras of psychiatry in America's history that in many cases did far more harm than good. Tell us about those. Well, psychiatry started with extreme optimism. Early American psychiatrists thought they would cure 70 or 80 percent of those they treated. They unfortunately could not do that. And by the end of the century, things were looking pretty bleak, and they tended to blame the victim to say the patients were biologically defective, and that was why they couldn't be cured. Ambitious psychiatrists weren't happy with that, and so they started searching for cures with a population that was shut up in mental hospitals in every sense of the term. They were locked away and their voices were silenced and they had no voice in their treatment. So it was easy to experiment on them. 
And we saw things like uh, explanations of mental illness that traced it back to chronic infections in the body. And in a period before you had antibiotics, the only way to limit, eliminate those infections was actually to cut the offending pieces out. And they started with teeth and tonsils. And when that didn't work, instead of saying, oh, the theory's wrong, they started taking out stomachs and spleens and colons and uteruses. And that persisted for more than a couple of decades. There were other attempts, the most famous or infamous of them all, emerged in the last half of the 1930s, and that was lobotomy, which involved physically damaging the frontal lobes of the brain. So there were a number of other drastic interventions, which in retrospect look horrible, but at the time were greeted as possibly saving the mentally ill from a lifetime of illness. You write about how psychiatry has really relied on the biological aspects of mental illness while ignoring the social aspects of it. Why is the social aspect so important? Well, it's not the case that for its entire history, American psychiatry has ignored the social and the psychological. That happened really in a major way starting in about 1980. And the problem with that is much of mental illness even serious mental illness clearly has roots in trauma and in social factors and psychological factors. I think monism, that is choosing either the psychological or the biological, is a serious mistake in approaching these things. And American psychiatry in the last four decades has really gone overboard on just one side of that equation. And unfortunately, it's led to some improvements, but they are very limited. And research in genetics and in neuroscience has given us a good deal more information about the brain uh, and about genetics. But in terms of its clinical usefulness, what it does for patients, it's done nothing. And one of the ways we can see that is if you look at how long the rest of us live and how long people with serious mental illness live, you'll see that the differential is 15 to 25 years. So the mentally ill die that much sooner. And that gap is growing, not diminishing. So that's not a good sign. Beyond that, of course, a lot of mental illness is of a somewhat milder, but still distressing sort. And we're seeing an epidemic of that at the moment, post-COVID, especially among the young. And that's a very worrisome development. And it's obviously not something we can explain simply in terms of biology. You also write how ignoring the social aspects of psychiatry feed into racial disparities in mental illness treatment that persist even today. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes, of course. In the first half of the 19th century, Black Americans were largely kept out of the asylum. When they did start to enter the asylum after the Civil War, they usually were put into separate but not equal institutions or where they were put into racially mixed institutions, they were segregated in separate wards. And of course, as we see in other aspects of American history, the treatments were very much worse if you were a racial minority. The same thing happened with, with women. I spoke of lobotomy earlier. We know from studies of individual hospitals that even though men slightly outnumbered women in mental hospitals, about 65% of all lobotomies were performed on women. 
racial discrimination obviously persisted and persists. So we're in an era now where we've shut our mental hospitals and we've ejected the mentally ill. We talk about community treatment, except there's no community and effectively there's no treatment. The single largest places of treatment for the mentally ill now are the Los Angeles County Jail, Cook County Jail in Chicago, Rikers Island in New York. And disproportionately, those prisoners who are mentally ill are racial minorities. In the mid-1900s, psychiatry started to use medicines to treat mental illness, giving rise to the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, You question the effectiveness of that approach, though. Well, it's a mixed picture, and I don't want to suggest that there's been no progress. Um, those, the first antipsychotics came to market in 1954, the first antidepressants shortly after that, the first so-called minor tranquilizers uh, like Milltown and later Valium, in, again, in the same general period. And those medications for some patients clearly marked an improvement. Uh, Psychiatrists weren't lying when they saw changes and changes they interpreted as as positive. But the problem with those medications is there no psychiatric penicillin. What they do is help with symptoms. And that's a good thing, but they only help some patients, by no means all. And they carry with them a pretty heavy price in side effects. So when you choose whether to use drug treatment or not, it's the best remedy we have, best set of remedies we have now, but they're at best a very partial, they're a band-aid, not a real solution. And so briefly, how would you sum up American psychiatry's failure in treating mental illness? Well, it's a mixed picture, but what I would say is the profession has put all its eggs in one basket in the last 40 years. That's the biological basket. It's looked to neuroscience and to genetics. And largely, those have failed to deliver clinical improvements. I think, as always, when you're operating in a position of extreme uncertainty, the smart thing is to spread your risk, to try multiple approaches. And indeed, American psychiatry needs to focus, it seems to me, much more on how they can help patients, not to dismiss the need for primary research, for for basic research, but there also needs to be an inquiry into how we can help our patients in the here and now in better ways, how we can solve the problem of, for example, all the homeless mentally ill we see in our streets, the numbers of mental patients consigned to jails. This is really a scandal. And it's not psychiatry scandal alone. This is policy choices by politicians and indeed by the rest of us that I think have been seriously misguided. I have been speaking with author and professor of sociology emeritus at UC San Diego, Andrew Skull. His new book, Desperate Remedies, Psychiatry's Turbulent Quest to Cure Mental Illness, comes out Tuesday, May 17th. Professor, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Hindman. In March... 
The San Diego Italian Film Festival lost its founder, Victor LaRuscia, to an aggressive form of stomach cancer. He was 80 years old. Tomorrow, the festival will celebrate his life with a screening of the Italian film Loose Cannons at the Museum of Photographic Arts. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with his stepdaughter and new president of the board, Jennifer Davies, about his legacy and how the festival will move forward. Jennifer, San Diego lost a cultural icon in Victor LaRuscia, who started the San Diego Italian Film Festival more than a decade ago. What do you remember of its origins and, and what kind of prompted him to create this? It's funny because it's, it feels, even though it's only been 16 years only, it feels like it's been around forever. And, you know, I really thought about like what prompted him. And I think it was just him having the time and the inclination. I mean, he always loved movies. He taught film. He, it was his joy. And so I think he just started meeting people that were willing to have that kind of conversation. And he saw the p- possibilities to create something larger than himself. You mentioned the word conversation, and that's something that I always associate with the Italian Film Festival and with Victor. But it was the sense that you don't just watch a film. You need to watch it and then hang out for a long time afterward talking about it. And why was that so important to him? For Victor, you know, I always say Victor knowledge was never a solitary pursuit. It was never a monologue, right? It was it was a discussion and a dialogue. And through that discussion and dialogue, you could learn more about each other, about the art and that exploration. And that was what excited Victor the most, I think, about the Italian festival or films or any sort of knowledge was the ability to to work together to come to a a solution or a conversation. And even if you didn't agree, that journey was very important. And and like the films, he loved films, but in a lot of ways, Italian films were just a vehicle to have the conversation, to have a party, to connect with people. And that's one of the things I always saw with Victor and that I, I hope I've learned from is he saw connections where other people didn't. You know, he always wanted to figure out who he could collaborate with, with the Italian film festival, even if it was far afield and a normal person wouldn't see it. He always found connections. And again, the Italian Film Festival was a way to give back to the community that had given a lot to him, but it was also a way for Victor to stay engaged with his big, huge brain and and, and meet new people and have new ideas and and be pushed. I mean, he was 80 years old, but nobody ever thought he was that age because he was still young at heart because he still wanted to engage with the world around him and learn new things from new people. You mentioned film as a vehicle, and it also seemed to be a vehicle for him to share Italian culture, and that seemed to be a very important part of the festival. No, it was. I mean, you know, Victor was from very humble background, humble beginnings, but the Italian experience, both as an immigrant and the emotions and the the drama of Italian life, I mean, that was something that really Victor understood and felt and he wanted to share because it is a very special sort of, you know, background and and approach. You know, as he always said, it was a piazza, not just Italian films, but an Italian perspective. Film was a vehicle, but it was a vehicle to share a larger worldview that Italians seem to bring to the world, whether it be good food, good conversation, emotion, drama, comedy, you know, deep feelings, deep thoughts. You know, that was all the things that Victor identified with his Italian heritage and what he wanted people to see and know and explore with him. And you are taking over as president of the board for the San Diego Italian Film Festival. And what things are you really striving to kind of keep in terms of what Victor's initial vision was for the festival? 
I want it to continue to be the conversation. I want it to be the piazza. I want it to be a place where people feel welcome and can gather and experience things together, whether it be film or food or just celebrations or conversations. So, but as I say to people, you know, Victor is irreplaceable. So I can't do the things that Victor could do where he could talk deeply about films and history and Italian culture. So it's like, we're basically going to have to build with a bunch of different people to replace Victor and he's irreplaceable. So it's like, for people that don't know the intimate details of how the film festival goes, we want people to not notice that there's a difference, right? That it, to them, they're still going to have these great conversations, these great parties, but we're going to have to, on the back end, do a lot of things <laughs> that Victor didn't do because Victor could just do it by being Victor and, you know, having a coffee and <laughs> and sort of just, oh, it'll, it'll work out. So we're going to have to be a little bit more professional on the back end, but we don't want anyone to see that. We don't want anyone to know that. We want it to stay very true to Victor's vision of, you know, the piazza. The festival is going to be having an event this Friday. So what is that going to entail? So it, um, there'll be sort of, uh, there'll be Prosecco and some Italian pastries like Sfoyadel for, you know, just sort of for a half an hour. And then we'll have a very short program, um, including a tribute video to Victor, where some of us, including yourself, were interviewed to talk a little bit about Victor. And then we're going to watch the movie, which is um, Mini Pagante. Which is based in Puglia, which is where Victor's family's from, and it's a fun comedy about family identity and business. Um, and then we're just having a short Q and A session, but it's really to kind of it's the kind of thing the film festival always did, and it's what Victor enjoyed the most. And it's just sort of a night to remember him and kind of feel at one with him, even though he's not there in person. In spirit, he will be. That's the hope. Well, and Victor seemed to have left a legacy in terms of wanting his life to be celebrated and wanting to have an event like this to be very joyous and about film and community and food and people. No, he did. I mean, when, when, we, when we found out the, the grim diagnosis, I mean, the first thing he said to me and my mom was, okay, you guys are going to have to start planning a party. And so, you know, that we want the celebration to continue because if you knew Victor, he was not a person he would want a celebration. He would want the celebration to continue. And like I said, for Victor, life was a party and he wanted everyone invited. And what do you think defined Victor? Uh, or and, and what do you think his legacy is going to be? Victor was so many things. I mean, the word that I've used before, he was big, right? He was big in everything. He had a big personality, big hugs, so generous, big brain. Um, you know, someone said expansive. And I think that's sort of what it is. Like he, he had such a desire to connect with people and to make connections. And the Italian Film Festival was a vehicle for those connections. And so I think, and creating the community. I mean, it was great to see how many people Victor touched throughout his life. And it is a community and they, and it's sort of like, even if we don't all know each other intimately, we know each other because there was a connection with Victor sort of as at the center. And I think that's what it is, his ability to bring people together. And now that community is gonna continue to work to make sure that this film festival and Victor's approach to life is his legacy. And so I think that's, I mean, that's a pretty, pretty good legacy. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about the San Diego Italian Film Festival and about Victor LaRouche. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate this.
That was Beth Accomando speaking with Jennifer Davies. The San Diego Italian Film Festival will hold an Italian movie night and fundraiser in honor of its late founder, Victor LaRuscia, on Friday at the Museum of Photographic Arts. 